0: Probably no surprise to you, church family, when I tell you that our world, our culture, um, has fixed itself upon this idea of self-fulfillment, pursuit of one's happiness at any cost. Uh, The question, um, am I getting fulfillment from this, or does this make me happy, has become the so ingrained in our culture, such a a prevalent question in our culture that we even place it oftentimes, sadly, even in the church, above what God has commanded in his word. Does it make me happy? Is this fulfilling for me? Listen to this quote from a book entitled Divorce, How and When to Let Go. Your marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is just a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits to be proud of because they're indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing that you've ever done. Getting a divorce can be positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented in our lives. It can be a personal triumph. Wow. By by making self-fulfillment and my happiness, one's own happiness, the guiding principle of life, then you can call failure, marriage, failure, you can call success, according to this quote, Something that's disintegrating, you can call growth. Something that's a disaster, you can call triumph. Do you see how worldly wisdom is opposed to the wisdom of God? And this is sadly not just a trait in uh, the world or out there, but it's, it's become the mentality of many in the church today. Many that would call themselves Christians have this sort of mentality about marriage and divorce because self-fulfillment has superseded obedience to God's word. Kent Hughes says in his commentary on this passage, what a tragedy that the elevation of one's self-fulfillment is the ultimate good and it functionally reduces God's word to an optional guidebook to meet one's emotional needs. The inerrant Bible is replaced by humanistic value systems in the Christian's life and this is a deadly error. Listen, more than self-fulfillment or even our own happiness We need obedience to God's word. God is not this morning in heaven wringing his hands with anxiety, biting his fingernails, worrying about whether you or I are happy or not. But he is looking for obedience among his people. And in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel says that God actually desires obedience more than worship. So if we're his people if we're followers of Jesus, if our priority is Christ, then we must ask, even if it's countercultural, even if it's against everything that our world would be saying today, we must ask, what does he say? What does Christ say? What does the Word tell us? I'll give you a disclaimer from the beginning here. I know that there are many brothers and sisters, even in this room, that have experienced the misery of divorce, had conversations with many of you about that, Some of you in this room are caught between parents that are uh, at war with one another. Some of you have been the offending party in a divorce, either, either before coming to Christ or while still mature in your faith. You were the adulterer. I know that there are some situations even in this room and in our church today that are so convoluted, it's difficult to ask, how do we apply biblical principles to my situation? I understand that this morning, and so it's with humility that we approach this subject. It's by asking God for his grace and mercy that we walk through these things. And for many of these reasons, because it's, it's such a tough issue, and because it's so prevalent in the church today, many churches and, and, and pastors and teachers simply avoid the subject altogether. But we can't do that. And this is why we preach through books of the Bible. We don't get to avoid the, the, the hard stuff. We don't just get to skip over the tough stuff. We t- teach and preach the whole counsel of God's word. And with that said... We need to do so with humility, knowing that sin complicates things, knowing that it can become so convoluted. We don't don't have in our own minds an understanding for how we apply biblical principles here. And so it's one of the the main reasons that we live in community together. God has called us to be a a faith family so that we're walking through these difficult issues in community with one another, sharing our burdens, sharing our struggles in community, walking through life together. Applying the word of God together. And so if you're not a part of a group that's doing that, even this issue this morning I think shows us the need for that. So disregard what the world around us would say. Disregard what may even be your default on this issue of marriage and divorce. And let us this morning every one of us derive our convictions from what Jesus and the Bible says about marriage and divorce this morning. Our text, Matthew chapter 10, does exactly that for us. Let me remind you real quickly where we've been. Mark is writing to show us that Jesus is the Son of God who came to save his people from their sins. And he's demonstrated this through the authority that Christ has had over over nature, over over teaching, over all of the the sicknesses and even death that we've seen. The disciples have seen Christ do, they've watched him do remarkable things. Most recently, the, the transfiguration. That he would, for a moment, pull back the curtain and allow them to see his glory. The way he existed in eternity past and the way that he will exist for eternity future. They caught a glimpse of that. It transformed their thinking, their understanding of who Jesus is. And yet, even though they saw that, Jesus predicted his death immediately before and resurrection and immediately after his transfiguration, and they missed it. They failed to grasp what he's saying. They expect a king that will come with military power and overthrow Rome and Jesus has been trying to teach them and show them that his kingdom will come, but it's through his own suffering and death and his grace is that's given for forgiveness of sins. And so two weeks ago before Easter, uh, two weeks ago, the last time we were in Mark, we saw this uh, string of teaching. Where Jesus is taking the disciples and he's instructing them. He knows he's headed to the cross. He's set his face toward Jerusalem and he's going toward his death. And so he's teaching his disciples, even on the road as they travel, uh, what it means to be his followers. He's preparing them for when he's not going to be with them. For when he ascends and returns to be with the Father. And so we continue in that teaching this morning. Jesus continues instructing the disciples what it means to be his follower, and particularly this morning, the Pharisees have come to him, as you've heard the text read, and they come up with this question on, on divorce, and Jesus uses it as an opportunity to correct the Pharisees, but to also instruct his disciples, his followers, on what it means to follow him on this issue. And so, set the context for you a bit. You see in verse 1, it says, He left there. Well, where is there? It's Capernaum. This is his home base for ministry. This is where Jesus, as he went out doing ministry all over Galilee, he returns time and time again to Capernaum. It was a place of comfort for him. It was the closest thing to a home that he had. And he's leaving that place of comfort to go to Jerusalem, a place where he knows he'll be betrayed and murdered. And so as they set out in verse 1, it says he left there. Jesus knows that he's never going to be returning to Capernaum again. It's his last time to be there. He knows he set his face toward his own death. Then it says also that he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Why is that significant? Why would Mark tell us that? Because if you remember back in our study of Mark, if you go back towards the beginning, we saw that this is where John the Baptist was put to death. John the Baptist was beheaded in this region. This region is under the authority of Herod. You remember him. Now Herodians... And as he traveled there, as Jesus is traveling there with his disciples, possibly out of hearsay or possibly out of a desire to see if if Jesus would be given the same execution that John received, a crowd gathers. And the Pharisees, as they've done over and over again, they come to oppose Jesus. And in verse 2, we see that these cunning Pharisees are attempting to trip him up. They're attempting to trap him once again. And so to be clear, their question here on divorce... It was not because they were wanting spiritual growth, not because they were wanting to know what God would say about this issue. It's because they're trying to have Jesus killed. If you remember, John was beheaded. Why was it that John lost his life? Why was it that he was beheaded? Well, because he called out Herod's ungodly marriage to his niece, all right? He calls out his marriage, tells him it's sinful, tells him it's wrong. And so this marriage issue has been a hot-button topic for these Pharisees. And if they can get Jesus to say the same kind of things about marriage that John did, well, then maybe Jesus will meet the same fate. Maybe Jesus will lose his head. So before we dive in, though, to the question from these Pharisees and Jesus' statement on divorce, we need to know something about the time period. This will help for us to understand what's going on here <laughs> To understand what they're talking about, what they're thinking about concerning marriage and divorce in the first century where Jesus was living and doing ministry. The question from these Pharisees that you're going to see in just a moment, the question from them goes back to a single phrase in Deuteronomy. It's helpful for us, right, because we just studied Deuteronomy before Mark. And so if you can jog your memory and go back, Deuteronomy chapter 24 Verse 1, you can even turn there if you want. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 is the only passage in the Old Testament giving grounds for or procedures for divorce. I'll read you that verse. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, And the verse continues, the controversy that is being brought up here, the controversy that the Pharisees are trying to trip Jesus up with here comes from two words in that verse, some indecency. If she no longer finds favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, those two words, the hot button question in Jesus' day was, what does some indecency mean? There were two schools of thought on this issue. Two groups of people that were that were debating this issue. One group, the school of Hillel. That's not important unless you just like that kind of thing. The school of Hillel is more of a liberal group of Jewish leaders. They would have said that indecency here in Deuteronomy 24, some indecency, could be basically anything. right? That was where they were arguing from. Literally, if she spoils dinner, that could be an indecency that you would find in her. Or if she came outside with her hair inappropriately down, that could be an indecency that would be... Um, qualify for divorce or if she spoke to a man on the street or if she talked disrespectfully about her husband's in-laws that could be means for divorce that could be the sum indecency that Deuteronomy 24 is talking about. Uh, Rabbi Akiba uh, a rabbi a teacher from this school of thought said that it could even mean that a husband found another woman more desirable and so he no longer had favor for his wife and that could be cause for some indecency. So you see this school of thought basically said that anything could qualify as some indecency. The second group, the school of Shammai, another group of of Jews that were um, in that that day, were more conservative. They said that some indecency in Deuteronomy 24 only meant marital unfaithfulness, but, but wait for this, marital unfaithfulness that was not actual adultery, not sexual adultery. Well, why would they say that? Well, because adultery, if you remember back to the Old Testament, adultery, sexual adultery, was punishable by death. So some indecency couldn't be that because that would be punishable by death. And so some indecency had to be something short of actual adultery, but that was some kind of marital infidelity. And so this conservative and liberal debate was the context for this discussion. It was the context for this question from the Pharisees. They come up to Jesus, and they want to know where Jesus is going to stand on this question of what qualifies as some indecency. What gives us grounds to divorce our wives? That's what they're asking Jesus. And you see it in verse 2. Mark chapter 10, verse 2. The Pharisees came up to him in order to attest him And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now often as we've done, as we've studied the gospel of Mark, Mark will share a story and then the other gospels may share the same exact story, but add additional details, may say it in a different way. And so this morning, Matthew's gospel does that. And so you may want to keep a finger in Matthew chapter 19 as well as Mark chapter 10. Or if you have a neighbor sitting by you, maybe they keep their finger in Matthew 19 and you keep yours in Mark 10. And you sit by them so you can see both of them at the same time. It's helpful for us though because Matthew says some things in his gospel a little bit differently. It gives us a clue as to what these Pharisees are trying to do toward Jesus and tripping him up. Matthew chapter 19 verse 3 the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife? Exact same to that point. But Matthew adds, for any cause. So you see the question. You see the difference in what Mark is recording what Matthew is recording. The question is, are, are you able to divorce your wife, Jesus, for any cause? And They were trying to draw Jesus into this long-standing debate between these two groups, this liberal conservative debate, and by using his answer, however he answers, to get him killed because he answers wrongly. So they're setting a trap for Jesus. But Jesus doesn't answer their question directly. He's God. Jesus is God. He knows the foolish game that they're trying to play. He won't, he won't be lured into their trap and their, their foolishness. Instead, he goes back to God's design for marriage and creation. He goes all the way back to the beginning. He goes all the way back to Genesis and teaches them and gives us today, as the church today, the most extensive teaching on marriage and divorce in all of the New Testament. And though we're studying the Gospel of Mark this morning. You may want to keep your finger in Matthew because we're going to use it heavily this morning, more so than we usually do, because Mark uh, and Matthew agree on everything. They're, They're exactly the same. Matthew's saying the exact same things Mark does, except for he gives this famous exception clause, Right? If you've been in church any amount of time, um, Jesus gives some teaching here, and he gives an exception. He gives a ground for which a man or woman can be divorced biblically. That's in Matthew, not in Mark, and so we're going to lean on Mark—I mean Matthew—a little more heavily this morning than we usually do. So, I guess two points this morning, if we would have points. Number one, Jesus' instruction on divorce. Jesus' instruction on divorce. Matthew chapter nineteen, uh, verses four through twelve. Jesus begins by taking them, like I told you, back to the beginning, back to creation, back to the Garden of Eden. Matthew 19, verse 4, or Mark, if you're open to that, chapter 10, verse 6. says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh." But therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is saying that in the beginning, God's ideal plan and design, God's plan for marriage, divorce was inconceivable. It was impossible. It was not even thought of. And here Jesus is emphasizing a couple things about marriage for us this morning. If you're married or ever even want to be married or even thought about being married, lean in and listen to this because this is what Jesus is teaching us about marriage. Number one, that it's an intimate relationship. There's intimacy in marriage that's unlike any other relationship in the world. Two, shall become one flesh, Jesus says. Marriage is the deepest intimacy possible within earthly relationships. and Deeper than the relationships that you have with your children, who come from our own bodies. Jesus is saying that's that's the intimacy that you have with a spouse. Jess has a recording from the first time that I laid eyes on Desmond. Jess had been a trooper. She had been knocking it out of the park all day long, laboring, and they decided to do a C-section, and so we went in, and and we didn't want to miss that moment, so she hits record on just the audio recording on her phone, and that moment when Desmond entered into this world, and I laid eyes on him, it was overwhelming, instantaneous love, and you can hear it in the recording. I just lose it. That bond that was created instantly, that bond that grew the the second I saw him and held him in my arms, the love that developed and increased as, as he's grown older and he's gotten bigger. I love my son. Yet I'm not one flesh with my son, I'm only one flesh with that woman on the front row, with my wife. There's an intimacy there. There's a one-flesh union that exists between a man and his wife that doesn't exist in any other relationship on this planet. Second, I told you Jesus was emphasizing a couple things. Second, Jesus is emphasizing the permanence of marriage. And you see this. He's in verse 6, chapter 19, verse 6. Jesus adds his own comment to the quote from Genesis. So Jesus quotes Genesis, but then he adds his own comment. And by the way, he can do that because he's God. We can't do that, but he can do that because he's God. He says this in verse 6, They no longer are two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. There was never a thought of divorce ever. God's plan from the beginning, beginning was monogamous, intimate, enduring marriage between one man and one woman. And anything less than that is a departure from God's plan. But Matt? Matt? You may be thinking, I can see the wheels turning. Matt, didn't the fall happen? Didn't sin enter the world? Didn't sin mess things up? Well, yeah, great question. I love how you're thinking this morning. It did. There's some things that are not possible after the fall that were possible before the fall, like pain-free childbirth, and all the mamas in the room are like, yeah, amen. But the fall and sin did not change God's standard for marriage. You see this in Malachi, Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Why has God abandoned us, you cry? I tell you why. It is because the Lord has set, seen your treachery in divorcing your wives and has been, uh, who, have, who, you, who have been faithful to you through the years. The companions you promised to care for and keep You were united to your wife by the Lord. It's God's wise plan when you were married that the two of you became one person in his sight. And what does he want? Godly children from your youth. Therefore, guard your passions. Keep faith with the wife of your youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, says he hates divorce. So what do we learn? Divorce is a tragedy because it's a departure from God's plan. And all of this modern talk in our culture in recent years about creative divorce or positive growth oriented divorce is all just a confused understanding, is a confused understanding of God's original design. So let's continue. Again, follow the reasoning of the, the conversation. Follow the conversation that these Pharisees, this questioning that they bring to Jesus. The Pharisees are asking, can a man divorce his wife for any reason, for any reason that he wants? And Jesus responds by saying that divorce was never God's plan. From the original, it, from, the, uh, from uh, creation, like it was never God's standard. And so the Pharisees, they back up and they try to come at him again. They just back up and try to, try to answer ask the question again. And you see this in Matthew nineteen seven or if we are open in Mark, Mark 10, 4. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Their logic is this. Well, Moses made provision for divorce in Deuteronomy 24, so how can you, Jesus, say that it's not a part of God's original plan? Seems to be a valid question, right? Well, let's see Jesus' answer in verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you Key for us allowed you to divorce your wives, but not from the but from the beginning it was not so. And so his answer here is actually correcting the Pharisees' understanding of the text. No, no, no. Jesus says Moses only permitted divorce; he didn't command it. As you've misspoken, as you've misunderstood your Old Testaments. Go back to Deuteronomy twenty-four, Pharisees. Moses didn't command divorce; he commanded a certificate to be give, to be given to the the wife. If there was going to be a divorce, why? Because of your hardness of heart. So if in your sin, you're going to persist and, and do this anyways, then Moses is commanding you to give, give a certificate because of this for this woman's protection to make sure that she's cared for. Because without this certificate, she would be subject to exploitation. She'd be subject to legal consequences. This certificate kept her from, uh, from being abused. It also kept the man from being able to marry her again, Right? Whenever he felt like it, he could just divorce her and then remarry her if it was convenient. She could be treated like a piece of property, like a slave. And marriage was not something that you could just walk in into and out of whenever it was convenient. So, Jesus says, if in your sin and hardness of heart, there's going to be a divorce from your wife, which was never God's plan anyways, then you're not going to just do so and simultaneously destroy this woman's life. And so now that Jesus has set the record straight for both of these, these questions from the Pharisees, We get to the heart of Jesus' teaching on divorce. Some call this the exception clause. Basically, this is what Jesus is saying about the only grounds permissible for divorce. The only reason uh, that you could have, biblically, a divorce. And this is in Matthew 19.9. And as I told you before, this part is not in Mark's gospel. And so if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 19.9, Mark's is just a shorter version of the same text. Matthew 19.9. And I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality, and marries another commits adultery. Jesus grants that divorce is permissible. Again, not ideal, not God's plan, but permissible. And many have taken this statement from Jesus and like the Pharisees, remember what the Pharisees are doing here in this whole thing anyways, they're taking Deuteronomy 24, 1 and the two two words, some indecency in Deuteronomy 24, And they're using it to create a loophole so they can divorce for any reason they want. And many today are in different schools of thought over Jesus' teaching here, this exception clause. Many have used Jesus' teaching here to try to create loopholes. Well, sexual immorality could mean anything. So I've got all kinds of ground, right, for divorce. And the whole thing hinges upon what Jesus means by except for sexual immorality. These two words hold the meaning for Jesus' statement, particularly the word immorality, sexual immorality. The Greek word here in the original language that this was written in is the word pornea. Sound familiar to you? We get our English word pornography from it. So some of you heard that and think, well, that means if my husband looks at porn or has ever looked at porn, then Jesus is saying that I can go and get a divorce, right? Not so fast. I said we get our English word from it, but that's not originally what that word Meant. Greek dictionaries will tell us that that word means fornication, prostitution, or any other kinds of unlawful intercourse. When pornea is applied to the married relationship, when pornea is applied to what happens in marriage, then it means, then our text reads exactly like it does sexual immorality, which is the word used in most of our translations. Otherwise, illicit intercourse, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, some type of sexual intercourse that happens that's not within the confines of God's original plan and design. And so it's important to observe in the context that Jesus is sharing this information. Remember, their world is much different than ours. And in the context of that Jesus was sharing this, all of this was in conversation with the Pharisees about their Old Testament law, right? They're asking something about Deuteronomy 24, And so all of these things that that we just read that pornia could mean, sexual immorality, intercourse, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, all of those practices in the Old Testament were punishable by death. The sins were indeed terminated, or these sins did terminate the marriage, but it was terminated not by divorce, but by death. And by Jesus' time, again, remember the Jews in Jesus' time, Jesus and these Pharisees were living under Roman rule. And so Roman government had made it difficult to obtain a death sentence for these religious offenses. And so Jewish practice by that time was to substitute divorce for death. These two schools of thought that we just talked about, the conservative school and the liberal, liberal school, they were not discussing whether divorce was permissible for adultery. That was clear. Every, everyone already believed that and practiced that. And so what's the point, Matt? Well, all of this, in all of this, this whole conversation, what we see is that Jesus, the Son of God, who has authority over all, is being far stricter than either of these two schools. Than the liberal school, the Shammai, or the, or the Hillel. Jesus' teaching is Much more strict. He's superseding the teaching of Deuteronomy 24 and saying that the only grounds permissible for divorce was sexual immorality, an offense that was originally, if you remember, punished by death. The plain reading of Jesus' teaching is clear. When Jesus says something, he means it. He permitted divorce and remarriage on one ground and only one ground, sexual immorality. Notice that he permitted it. He did not command it. Divorce is never mandatory. I think too often in our day, too, too many men and women eagerly pounce on the infidelity of their spouse as an opportunity to get out of a relationship that they didn't want to be in anyways. Oh, he broke, it. he broke the law. He broke the rule that Jesus gave, so now I can divorce him. It's easy to look for a way out. Instead, why don't we work for ways to stay together and work through the sin and the problems so that our, our marriages would glorify Christ? Again, going back to Mark 10, our passage. See how radical this teaching is from Jesus. Mark 10, verses 10 through 12. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. You can see they're struggling. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus had eliminated the loopholes. He had taken the loopholes out of Deuteronomy 24, and this was revolutionary. This was radical thought. As Jesus has done time and time again, he'll take something that was in place, something that they, they believed to be you know, religious truth, and he turns it on his head and he makes it so much more strict under his ethic. The disciples' response to this teaching indicates how radical it is. You see it in Matthew 19. I know we're flipping back and forth, but 19, verse 10. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. If the grounds for divorce, the only biblical grounds that you're going to give Jesus for divorce, is sexual immorality, and it's better for us to not even get married. If the exceptions of the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, the conservative school and the liberal school, are both wrong, and only grounds for divorce is, 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 is adultery, then it's better to stay single, Jesus. And teaching this, I understand, church family, that hearing this and teaching this is out of sync and out of style with our culture. If you watch TV or movies today, this teaching probably sounds primitive. People people enter into and out of marriage just so flippantly. Even some Christian counselors, some Christian counselors today would would teach things, would recommend divorce and remarriage on grounds that are in opposition to the clear teaching of Jesus. Marriage has often been made too trivial. It's often talked about as if it's just a a sexual union that dissolves when our, our love grows too weak or, or gives out, no longer finding fulfillment in this relationship. According to Jesus, marriage demands total commitment, and only death or the most flagrant sexual infidelity can bring it to an end. We've seen Jesus' teaching on divorce and what the, what the Bible would record Jesus as having said about divorce, but is this all that the Bible says about divorce? Is this the, the conclusion of the matter? Does the Bible say something else? Well, yes, it does. And so we won't spend a great deal of time here, but I want to touch these because I don't want us to walk away with Mark 10 thinking that's the only thing that's said about divorce. The Bible has more to say. And so if we had a second point today, it would be Paul's instruction on divorce. First Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. And you can turn there with me if you'd like. We'll, we'll read through those verses in a second, but I want to set the background for you for what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul gives. Some instructions to a few different groups of people in this chapter. First, to unmarried people in verses 8 and 9. He has instructions for those that are not married yet. Then second, to married believers. A believer and a believer that come together in a marriage relationship. You see that in verses 10 and 11. And then finally, the third group uh, are to those that are in mixed marriages. One person is a believer and the spouse is not. That's in verses 12 through 16. And it's this last category that we have to pay attention to when considering the issue of divorce. Look at verse 12 with me. And to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Your translation probably has parentheses there. Some have misunderstood this to say that Paul is, is stepping over for a second. And he's saying, this is really just my opinion and, and it doesn't matter as much as what the Lord said. So I say, but, but not the Lord. But that's not what's happening here. That's not, what ha- that's not what's happening here because he's saying, I'm going to deal with uh, some cases that the Lord himself did not give a specific verdict on while he was on this earth teaching. Remember, as a writer of scripture and as an apostle, Paul has the same full apostolic authority to, to give commands in the word of God that Jesus would have had because he's preaching and writing under the authority of Christ. And so he's simply saying, I'm diving deeper into an issue here with some details that Jesus did not address before he ascended. That's, that's what's going on there with that parentheses, I, not the Lord. He's just making it clear there. And so the verse goes on. If any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever he, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Paul knew that in Corinth there were people coming to faith in Christ from from pagan backgrounds. And as they came to faith in Christ and were already married, there would be a a Christian and pagan union. They would be unequally yoked. And so in in this instruction, the Christian here, he's, he's commanding there, he's teaching, the Christian should not leave the unbelieving spouse. And then in verse 14, he gives the reason behind it. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. The reason for staying together, a Christian with an unbeliever, is that the unbeliever will be influenced toward Jesus and also the children by the life of the believer. And we often don't think of it like that. We often think that the believer is going to be drawn away or, or pulled back from Christ by the unbeliever. Paul says it's otherwise, that oftentimes, most times, it's otherwise. And I know from talking to many of you in our church family that, that you're a Christian today. You're a believer today because of the witness of your Christian spouse. Because of living with a believer. And they're, they're sharing the gospel with you. And so today, friends, if you're in an unequal union, if you're a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, take heart. There's hope. There is, there is, there is hope and great possibility that your faith will prevail and that God will use it to draw your spouse to himself. But it's in verse 15, as we continue, verse 15, that we see this continued teaching on divorce. Look at verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So the sense of what Paul is saying here is this. If the unbeliever deserts, leaves, abandons, is determined not to come back, Then let him or her go. Further, the Christian's not enslaved, which means that the, the, the unbeliever, the deserter, is the one that has broken the marriage bond. Thus, the believer is not enslaved, they're free to divorce and remarry. So, I realize the Bible has said much on this subject today. Let's wrap it all back up as I conclude. Mark has sandwiched this teaching about marriage and divorce right in the middle of a section where Jesus is giving the disciples one last training session, if you will, before he dies, is resurrected and ascends to be with the Father. And so this is no small matter. This is not just something that's insignificant or characteristic just of our day. Mark is is demonstrating to us, Jesus has made this a priority to instruct his followers on this before he ascends. And so this is It's something we need to lean into and hear. And so let's summarize what we've seen in the text this morning. The Bible allows for divorce for two reasons. Sexual morality or desertion or abandonment of a believer by an unbeliever. Further, the Bible allows for remarriage. That's just as much a part of this, right? That's just as much a question that comes from these texts. Uh, What about remarriage? We've talked about divorce. What about remarriage? Well, for three reasons, I believe. Number one, if the spouse is guilty of sexual morality and unwilling to repent and live in marital faithfulness, there are grounds for divorce and biblical remarriage. Second, when a believer has been deserted by an unbeliever, there are biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. And then three, as an extension of number two. I personally believe, so let me step out of here a second and say that we can disagree on this one and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. We can interpret the scriptures different here and still be in community with one another. So I'm, I'm personally convicted in holding to, and you may not, and that's okay, I personally believe that remarriage is permissible for those that have been married and divorced before coming to Christ as an extension of that second one and, and also a continuation of Scripture. Let me just quickly point to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Ephesians two fifteen talks about the new man. Ephesians four twenty four talks about the new self. And so not only are believers really new, the old has passed away. Those that have come to Christ are completely forgiven. Behold, all Sins, Ephesians says, have passed away with the old self old self. And so this must be the case with sin and divorce. Otherwise, if it's not the case with sin, the sin of divorce, then you would be saying essentially that divorce is the only sin for which Christ did not atone. And we would not want to say that. So let me help help and say clearly that divorce is never ideal. Divorce was never God's plan. Divorce was never God's ideal plan and and purpose in marriage. God was making an allowance for human sin and weakness. In Deuteronomy 24 and here in the words of Christ in Mark 10, God hates divorce. But, please hear me clearly, but we must realize that if someone divorces and remarries within biblical guidelines, it is not sin, though it is a result of sin, right? Right? All marriage is a result of sin. Our sin, our spouse's sin, we are two sinful people living under one roof, there's a whole lot of sin involved, and so the the, the divorce is always a result of sin. We're not perfect people. But biblical guidelines give us uh, clarity on biblical divorce and remarriage, and when that takes place, we must not call something that is not sin, sin. And so as I close, I realize we've said a lot about divorce, and we must mourn how much the percentage of divorce has peaked in the church and in our world today. But I want to be careful as we close, and I'm wrapping up, I promise. But as we close, I realize today that there are many, many, even in this room, affected personally by divorce. And with the Bible being as clear and tough on divorce as it is, you may be sitting here thinking this morning, well, I'm done. I've committed the unpardonable sin. I've already messed up in this map. And you may be discouraged and you may be tempted by Satan to feel as if this particular sin has disqualified you from everything. Friends, don't listen to that lie from Satan. Please hear me, friends. Don't listen to that lie from Satan. There is grace in the cross. Listen to this quote. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this way better than I ever could have. So let let me let him encourage you this morning. He says this. Even adultery. Even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It is a terrible sin. And God forbid that there should be one who feels that he or she has sinned himself outside of the love of God or outside of his kingdom because of adultery. No, friends, if you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven. And I assure you of your pardon. I hear the words of our blessed Lord, go and sin no more. What is Dr. Jones saying? It's this, that though our sins run deep, His grace is deeper. And though our sin is great, His mercy is more. And that pertains to us whether our sin was adultery, divorce, lying, gluttony, pride, anger, His grace is more. And it abounds for each and every one of us. And so listen, Poplar Spring, we want to make the main thing, the main thing, and that is the gospel. The Bible refers to us, the, the Christians, the believers in this room, as the bride of Christ, and Jesus is the groom. And so if you're here this morning, and even if, if right now you're trapped in a lifestyle of, of adultery, maybe, maybe pornography, maybe any, any kind of sexual sin, there is hope for you, friend. Why? Because Jesus will never abandon his bride. His grace is more. And if you feel like right now my life is wrecked, I've wrecked my wife, I've I've wrecked my husband, I've wrecked my family, I've wrecked our whole marriage. Friends, there's hope for you in Christ. That is not the end. That doesn't have to be the final word. The The cross of Christ has the final word. There is hope for you in Christ. We are brought into a covenant marriage type relationship with God by the blood of his son. And he will never, ever, ever be unfaithful to his vow. He will never transgress his promise of love and grace through the cross of Christ. John Piper says this, you are free to abandon your bride when Jesus abandons his. The implications of that are that he never will. And that is gloriously good news for us. that, That Jesus came and he kept the law perfectly. All of it, even Deuteronomy 24, all of the New Testament, he kept it perfectly because we couldn't. He died on the cross to pay our sin debt because we couldn't pay it. He rose from the grave to conquer sin, death, and hell because we couldn't do it. He is the faithful husband that we could never be. He upholds and keeps the covenant relationship. Come to him today and repent and be forgiven regardless of what your sin is. Find hope and freedom in Christ today. For you personally, for your marriage, there is grace in the cross.